the name of Jesus. You know, that name, Scripture teaches us, will be the name that all will bow before. All will confess. The challenge with those scriptures are it says that some will do it from heaven and some will do it from earth and some will do it from underneath the earth. That means that they'll confess it after it's too late. May we be about God's work and the gospel so that more and more people can hear and accept Jesus while there's still time. I ask you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Jude, the book of Jude, It's on page 1,405 in that pew Bible in front of you. I'm not going to tell you which chapter to go to in the book of Jude because there is only one chapter, but I will tell you to go to the first verse of the book of Jude. Now, there are at least, because you never can tell in a church that's growing how many there might actually, but there there are at least two... um, families expecting babies right now that, uh, that I'm aware of, and I thought that I would do just a little bit of work this morning to help them. You know, one of the greatest challenges, and I don't know if it was a challenge to you or a joy or it was easy, is trying to determine what to name your baby. So I did a little bit of work, and I did a research of the most popular baby names so far just in 2022. And in the girls, I'm giving you the top five, but I'm giving you five, four, three, two, one. So the fifth girl's name I give you will actually be the most popular girl's name. You guys get how I'm doing this. But in the girls, the fifth most popular name is Sophia, then Ava, then Amelia, then Emma. And the most popular girl's name currently of 2022 is Olivia. And as I looked at those names, I'm going, we got at least one of those, we got at least one of those, we got at least one of those. I looked at the boys, 54321, most popular names in 2022. Mateo is the fifth most popular boy's name right now. Then Elijah, then Oliver, then Liam, and the most popular boy's name in 2022 is Noah. You know, it's very interesting to see the rise and fall of names based upon different generations. Because if you look at these names, you're starting, some of you probably thought, well, man, some of the older names, they've been coming back for a few years, you know, because we some of these as as older names. And uh, some that are considered older are now fresh and new again, and some that were considered popular are now not anymore. I looked up Jeffrey. You know, we have so many Jeffs in this church, we number them. Jeff one, Jeff two, right over here, Jeff three, right over here, and then they just keep going if there are others. And what I looked at is that all of our Jeffs that I'm aware of right now, we sort of all fall into this similar age demographic. Because I looked at the the name Jeffrey, It hit its peak popularity in 1963, where it was the 10th most popular name that year year for a boy. In 2022, I went to this list, and I scrolled, and I scrolled, and I'm looking for Jeffrey, and I scrolled, and I scrolled, and I scrolled, and I got down to number 665. That means when parents are sitting down, and they've got a boy, and they're going to name that boy, they're never going to get to Jeffrey. (laughs) 
Very few people get there. And I imagine that the only Jeffreys that get a vote in 2022 are probably firsts or seconds or thirds or juniors or seniors, and they're going, oh, we got a name named Jeffrey. <laughs> I've asked you to turn to the book of Jude. Now, Jude is the shortened name or a version of a, the formal name Judas. And, you know, in Judas and Christian circles, we tend to frown and look down upon anybody named Judas. You know, people just don't name their kids Judas anymore. But in the early first century, Judas was a very, very popular Jewish name, mostly due to a hero of the faith and of the Jewish background, Judas Maccabeus, the leader of the Jewish resistance against Syria during the Maccabean Revolt, which was about 160 B.C. And so his name, everybody goes, we like Judas Maccabeus because he stood for what was right for the Jews. And so people just started naming their kids Judas. You see, even in the first century, parents gave thought to the name that they gave their children. So I ask you to stand with me. We're going to read from the book of Jude. And we're going to read the first three verses of the book of Jude. Jude, picking up in verse 1, says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. That's as far as we're going to go in Scripture today. I ask you to sit down. Keep your Scripture open. You're a note taker. Get your notes ready. Here we go. Verse 1 starts off with the word Jude. Now, it tells us that Jude wrote this letter. Jude is the author of this letter. And, you know, sometimes in Scripture there is debate, there is conjecture over who the actual author of a book, book was. Historically speaking, there's hardly any resistance to Jude being the real author of the book of Jude. I saw when I was reading up on the book of Jude that Jude, by some, has been called the neglected letter. It's known more, Jude is known more for being that little bitty book right before Revelation than it is known for what is in it. I also saw a review of all of the authors. If you just stop, and I wrote it down on my board, I went through and I wrote down all the authors that are given credit in the New Testament for writing books. And then if you write these large Christian men's names down, and then you were to do a pecking order, Jude would likely fall to the bottom of the pecking order of these spiritual saints. But this one word at the beginning of this small, neglected book says that God is using Jude to write a portion of the Bible. God has something to say to me and you today, and he gave it to Jude to capture so that we could have it today. And if somebody can use the neglected letter, the least New Testament author by some people's opinions, to be able to write something like this, 
That means that God can use whomever he desires to do whatever he desires if we will just make ourselves available to him. Amen? Because I was reminded, Scripture says, and I'm not going to read these, I'm just going to summarize these. Jeremiah 29, 11, the Lord says, I know the plans I have for you. And he goes on to say that these plans are for good and not evil, for a future and a hope. God says, I have thoughts for you. I have plans for you. Ephesians 3.20 talks about that the power that works in us, that when we come to yield our lives by faith to Jesus and become a child of God, that we are invested with the power of God that desires to work in us. And then Ephesians 2.10 said that we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand. And did you see? God said, I have a plan for you. It is to redeem you through Jesus. It is to work in you through power. And it is to then work through you for the good of the gospel. So when I read this one simple word, Jude, and we bring it into the context of all of God's character and all of God's scripture, We can summarize it this way. God knew Jude, knew who he was. God loved Jude. God desired to see Jude redeemed and therefore sent his son, Jesus. That God had plans for Jude, committed to work powerfully in and through Jude's life, and had a specific thing that he desired to accomplish, at least one, if not more, through Jude's life. And I I was driven, or I desire to make something really clear to you today. That how God felt about Jude, the plans, the purposes, the love, the specific works of good, how God had plans, he feels the same way about you right this moment. You might go, I don't like my name. Can you imagine being Jude in the first century? And how you get your name. I'd probably make it Jude too. He might have gone by Judas up until everything went sour with the name Judas. And then he said, I'm just Jude. (laughs) Have Have you ever known anybody that changed their name? I've known people that said, yeah, I don't go by that name anymore. Just call me this instead. That's hard. But I bet you that Jude didn't understand all this about God at a time. And that's what we're going to talk about for just a few minutes this morning. But how God feels about Jude, he feels about you. Whether you like your name or not, whether you like your circumstances or not, whether you like your situation or not, whether you're questioning him, whether you're seeking him, God knows you, loves you, has a purpose for you, and desires to work that purpose out through you. Yes, you. And you're going, God can't work in me. He can. Now, you have a role to play. It's called submission. It's called surrender. It's called sacrifice. But God can. 
Because until we come to understand the depth of God's love and provision for us, we will continue to think that Jude is an awesome story, that all these other authors and all these other heroes of the faith are awesome stories, but that's not what can happen in my life. Can I just tell you that that is a lie from Satan? Because Ephesians 3.20 says this in its entirety. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Church, can I just remind you, every single day you have a choice. You can submit yourself to God to allow Him to work in you through the power and then through you for the gospel, or you can withhold yourself from God. And as I have studied and read and prayed about Jude, I've come to understand that Jude probably understands this challenge of choosing whether to submit or not. Look what else it goes on in verse 1. It says, Jude, a bondservant. Jude calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Well, a bondservant, by definition, is a slave. The Greek word is doulos, which means one who is subservient to or entirely at the disposal of his master, a slave. In Roman times, the term bondservant or slave could refer to someone who would voluntarily serve another. Many prominent men of God in the Old Testament were referred to as servants. God spoke of Abraham as his servant. Joshua was called the servant of the Lord. David, Isaiah, even Jesus in the New Testament is called God's servant. In all of these instances, the term servant carries the idea of a humble nobility. Being God's servant, church, is a fantastic way to live. But while I studied and was taught and I was reading, because I've taught about bond servant before, but I, you know, it's, it's amazing how if you read things a second time or a third time, how you can pick up things that you might have missed the first time. Or maybe the Lord just draws your attention to a different word at a different time for your life. But as I was reading this, let me give you the definition of a bondservant once again. It's the Greek word, doulos, which means one who is subservient to or entirely at the disposal of his master and slave. You know, the word that God reached out and grabbed a hold of me, he's, there's the word entirely. We know what that means. It means completely. It means fully. It means all of me. This definition reminds me that Jude had gotten to a point in his life where he said, Jesus, through the Spirit, thank you for the word. Lord, I will serve you. You have all of me. All of me. Entirely, you have all of me. You know, I've heard people say that partial disobedience, I mean, partial obedience is actually disobedience. Do you know that partial surrender is not surrender? And Jude has said, I have surrendered all of me. 
to all of you. Church, can I ask you a question? How much of you is surrendered to Christ? If you had to find a percentage in your life, you go, well, I'm 50% surrendered. I'm, I'm, I'm 75% surrendered. Or we like to do it this way. I'm surrendered more than they are. But how much of you is surrendered? You see, based upon this definition and based upon how I read Scripture about how our lives are to be yielded to Christ, anything less than full surrender is not surrender at all. We get that, but we don't like what this next thing says. So if you're not surrendered at all, if we're saying that partial surrender is really not surrender, and if surrendering is part of how salvation occurs, you could just go to the next step, and it's a hard step to take, is if you're not fully surrendered to Christ, you may not be surrendered to him at all. And so when we hear this common phrase, a bond servant, we need to understand that Jude is fully surrendered himself to the Lord. He's changed his life. And if we're not fully surrendered, then we're missing out on the plans God has for us. You're missing out on the power that God wants to work in you. And you're absolutely missing out on God working through you. All of the things that he's done, desires to do in Jude's life. And, in, and you know, it's interesting. Jude understands this challenge as well. Look at verse 1. You're going, Jeff, we're never going to get there if you just keep knocking them off one word at a time. Can I tell you that I struggled this week, not on Jude, I knew pretty early in the week I was going to Jude. I struggled with the fact of, man, that's only one chapter. It's only 25 verses. I could probably, we could probably just knock this out Sunday. And then I heard the Lord say, what are you in a hurry for? Jude, verse 1, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And then he says that he is the brother of James. Jude tells us that he is the brother of James. James would be the leader of the early church and the author of the book of James. This would also, based upon scriptural validation, make Jude the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 6, verse 3 says this, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And so they were all offended at him. They were having a hard time separating Jesus, the Son of God, from what looked like a regular family. And so Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. You can also see that in Matthew chapter 13. And this connection of Jude being the brother of James, which then leads us to know that Jude was the half-brother of Jesus, is critical for us to understand the letter that Jude is writing and to understand Jude himself. Now, it's easy for you to hold on to Jude. It's just one page. But I ask you to turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 7. I want to show us something because we need to stop because until we fully understand 
who Jude was, where he came from in his perspective, everything else he tells us in the letter will fall outside of context. And so we want to keep this going. We're going to lay this down. But if you're in John chapter 7, if you're in that pew Bible, it's on page 1230. But allow me to read from John chapter 7. I'm listening to pages turn. It's music to my ears. Now, whether you're just flipping to that or you're just flipping pages just to help me feel good, I appreciate it either way. But in John chapter 7, picking up in verse 1, I'm going to read the first five verses of John chapter 7. It says, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers, remember we just named them, therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does, does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. We need to understand that there was a time in Jude's life Later in his life, because Jesus was in his ministry, so we're talking about, I don't know how old and how much younger he was than Jesus, but it would be easy to say that he saw all of Jesus' ministry. And Scripture reports that he did not believe. Did you see that? Jesus' brothers, including Jude, did not believe in him. That means that during the ministry of Jesus, they were not followers of Jesus. They did not believe he was the Messiah. They did not have faith. But now we see, go back to Jude, now we see that this Jude has faith, is a Christian, and is not just playing the game. He is fully committed, bond servant, entirely committed his life to serving his Savior, Jesus Christ. So what happened? Something happened. And I hope that when you see things like that happen, you go, what happened? Jeff, I hope you're going to tell us what happened. Well, thankfully, God's Word is thorough, and it tells us what happened. So let me just sort of fill in the blanks here for us just a little bit. Now, in order to do this, Jesus' brothers were lumped together, and we get to follow scripturally what happened in the book, I mean, in the life of James, the, what we would assume is the, not older than Jesus' brother, but the oldest of Jesus' brothers. We get to follow the story as it relates to James. Acts chapter 1, you don't have to go there, I'm just going to read this for your note taker, put down Acts 1.14 shows that James and his brothers were in the upper room with the disciples and others just after Jesus' ascension. You know, Jesus came and he showed himself to everybody, and then he got to the point where he called them together and he said, you wait here and the Holy Spirit will come, but I am going to go to be with the Father, and the ascension came. And Scripture tells us that as they waited for what they were waiting for, the Holy Spirit, as they waited the brothers of Jesus were with them. Cool. So what happened? 
You see, we're now in a position where we think that Jude and James, they've started to get this, understand this Jesus being the Messiah understanding. So what happened? Well, write down this note, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you, when you look it up later today, it's verses 1 through 7. And I'm going to read them to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 7. Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scripture, and that he was seen by Peter, then by the twelve, and that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep, and after that he was seen by James and then by all the apostles. Scripture says that James and his brothers, they saw Jesus after he died. The resurrected Jesus changed their lives. That's what we have to see in this. Jesus appeared, and understanding that Jesus died, they understood that. They watched it. Understanding that Jesus was buried, they saw it. And then understanding that Jesus was resurrected on the third day changed their lives. Church, can I tell you what Paul just told you that was? That simple statement, God sent his son based on his love to live for us, to die for us, to be buried and to rise again on the third day. Victory over death, victory over sin. That is the gospel. Plain and simple. That is the gospel. Paul said, and all I'm doing is I'm preaching what changed me, and I'm going to share it with you. It'll change you. And here we see that Jude's life was eternally changed in a moment when he encountered the gospel through the risen Savior. Another way of putting it is, is his life was changed entirely, fully, all of it. Because of Jesus. Church, we can say again, what changed Jude? The gospel did. Can I just remind you that the gospel is the answer? The answer to life, the answer to death, the answer to sin, to righteousness, to victory, to eternal life. Regardless of your question, regardless of your need, regardless of your circumstances and your situation, regardless of whether you believe or do not yet believe, the gospel is the answer. And church, if we do not stand upon that singular truth, we will never meet the needs in our community. We will never meet the needs in our families. The gospel, when we submit to it entirely, will change our lives. And then God, his plans will come. And he'll work through us and in us to bring about his glory. That's what happened in Jude's life. It changed 
Jude's life. I spent some time thinking about it this week. It's changed my life. I, uh, I'm not the man my wife married. And my wife married a Christian man. But there's something that happens when the word entirely enters your vocabulary. I hope it's changed yours. So Jude has told us who he is. Now he tells us who he's writing to. Look at verse 1. To those who are called, sanctified, and preserved in Jesus. Now, if you're going to do, I'm going to encourage you, every week we're in the book of Jude, I would encourage you to read the book of Jude. And while when I did that in Thessalonians, I was asking you to read a five-chapter book every week, and some of you did. I'm just asking you once a week to read 25 verses. One chapter. And what you'll find in those 25 verses is that Jude likes to write in a lot of threes. It's an amazing thing how we individually write or speak or do things. But he does things in a lot of threes, and we see a three here. To those who are called one, sanctified two, and preserved three in Jesus. Let me just give you a very quick look at this called. One way of looking at this is you could say that looks to the past. It was God's plan to call you. Romans 1.16 said that you are the called of Jesus Christ. God knew you before he called you. Romans 8.30 says to those he predestined, he also called there is a calling, there is a desire of God past, before, for you to be able to come to know Jesus. Then he goes on and said, not only to the called, but to the sanctified. Sanctified looks to the present. 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 through 10 says this, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God is manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, be the propitiation for our sins. Sanctification is a setting apart where God, once he captures your heart by faith in Christ, he begins to move the furniture around in your life. When you invite Jesus into your heart, he will move into your life and he will want to redecorate your life. And the purpose of that redecoration is so that you begin to look more and more and more like his son. Sanctified. To those who are called, sanctified. And then he says, preserve. Preserve looks to the future. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 says, We who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 says, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him until that day. Amen. Verse 3 said that he calls those who share this belief in the gospel, who have faith in Christ. Do you know that when you came to accept Jesus, 
God called you. He's sanctifying you, and he will preserve you. That's the work of God in your life. But look in verse 3. He goes another thing. He calls those who share this belief in the gospel, those who have faith in Jesus, he calls them saints. He calls them beloved. And note that he refers to them. He says that they share. That means with him, they share. They have a common faith. It's called the gospel. If we are bound by anything, it's the gospel. It is the blood of Jesus shed for us. It is the life of Jesus that died for us. And it is the resurrection of Jesus that makes us alive. That is that common bond that we have. That gospel is the only thing that we have that we can stand upon. And it, therefore, is the only thing that we have that binds us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jude says that we have a common faith. And because they share a common faith, Jude says that they will experience an overflow of God. Look in verse 2. Another three sum that Jude brings about. Mercy, peace, and love. Now, every single one of those could be a sermon by itself, but don't you worry. We're going to cover them right here. And I know what time it is. It won't take but just a second. Because those who know Jesus as Savior are called, sanctified, and preserved, they will receive some of God's richest blessings. Mercy. Mercy is God in his mercy does not give us what we deserve. Instead, he gave our punishment, what we did deserve. He gave it to his own son on the cross. Have you ever had somebody get in trouble when you knew it should have been you? Man, I'd set my sister up all the time. <laughs> if I couldn't get out of it, I was at least taking somebody with me. But we know what it's like to see someone else take what belongs, take what deserves us. Mercy. He goes on to say, not only do you get that, because see, in mercy, Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, surely he, that would be Jesus, hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Jesus did nothing wrong. I did everything wrong. And God's mercy caused him to place my sin on his perfect son. Peace. Because of Christ's work on the cross, believers can enjoy peace. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that means? When God looks at you, he's not mad at you. Psalms talks about God looks at the wicked in anger. But because of Jesus in your life, when God looks at you, he looks at you through the blood of Jesus, and therefore he sees you as perfect, holy, and righteous. And you're going, but I'm not. Well, that's why you've been called, that's why you're being sanctified, and that's why you'll be preserved, because in that process, you will. And God is granting you your future through the work of his son. And he looks at you 
that way. So you're not at odds with God if you are a child of God. And then love, mercy, peace, and love. Love, our faith in Jesus as Savior allows us to experience God's love. Romans 5.5 says this, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Jude, a bondservant, the brother of James, has come from disbelief, has experienced knowledge, met Jesus, the resurrected Savior, came to faith, which led him to entire submission, which is now causing him to act in love. And he challenges us, all who share this common salvation. Verse 3, he said, I exhort you to contend earnestly for the faith. Now, we're going to talk about that as we, break, as we jump into next week. But what he's telling you is you got to fight for it. If you're walking out of this building into this world without a desire or an understanding of your need to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith. You've already got it. Sometimes we Christians, we think if we've got Jesus, I've got mine, I'm good. And we just walk through life as if, as if I'm good. The reality is, is when you walk out of this world or out of this building into the world, there are a lot of people who do not have God's mercy. Who are not at peace with God. Who do not know love. And so when you walk out in this world, he says, you got to contend for the faith. It means you need to show this world the mercy you've received the peace you have, and the love that God is working through you. Because see, there are a lot of Jews in this world that God has purposes for, plans for, works planned out for, that are still on this side. They don't know Jesus yet. They've heard of him, but they don't believe And so Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. That's a miracle. And if you know Jesus today, you are a miracle. But that's not enough to sit down and go, got it. 